The reading is from Matthew 21, commencing at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to the Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, 
But also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. This is the gospel of Christ. Thank you, Margaret. Morning, everyone. My name's Joel, and I'm the minister here at St. Stephen's, and uh, it's lovely to be back. I've been on holiday for a couple of weeks. Uh, Lilia, Sophia, and I have been uh, in Australia. Uh, we, we got back uh, last week, and at least one of us is, is feeling more refreshed than the others. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, yeah, being, being here and, and, and seeing you guys again, and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting back into the, the book of Matthew this morning. So before we do, why don't we start uh, by spending some time in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, it is great to be back in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and as we look at these words now, we realise that uh, we need your help to understand. Uh, and so we ask that you would give us uh, understanding, uh, that we might live our lives in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1927, uh, a philosopher named Bertrand Russell wrote a book with the title, Why I'm Not a Christian. Uh, let me read you a short excerpt from it. You find as you look around the world that every single bit of progress in humane feeling, every improvement in the criminal law, every step toward the diminution of war, every step toward the better, better treatment of coloured races, or every mitigation of slavery, every moral progress that has been made in the world has been consistently opposed by the organised churches of the world. I say quite deliberately that the Christian religion as organised in its churches has, has been and still is the principal enemy of moral progress in the world. Uh, he makes some interesting claims, doesn't he? Uh, I'm sure most of us can see, see there are many flaws in the, in the sweeping generalisations that he makes, but I'm also sure uh, there will have been some instances where his gripes against Christianity uh, are perhaps more accurate than we would care to admit, where God's people have, have actually been a hindrance to others. And we see one such example in, in Matthew 21 as, as Jesus enters into the temple. We see the people of God acting as a, as a hindrance because what Jesus finds inside isn't uh, helping people in their relationship with God. And as Jesus enters in, he can't stand what he sees. And so Jesus acts and he speaks. And he shows us that godless worship has no place in the temple of God. And he offers us a warning as we think about how we ourselves worship God this morning. Uh, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I had a look online the other day, and we've been working our way through this book at, on and off since the start of 2020. So it's our third year in it. Uh, and it just happens to be that at this point in the Gospel, 20 chapters in, Jesus has been ministering for the best part of, of three years at this stage. Uh, so we're going at the, the right pace for now. 
Uh, These final eight chapters of the gospel focus mainly on the last week of his life as he heads to the cross. Matthew spends almost one third of his gospel looking at this week, uh, which you may well know as as Holy Week. Uh, And it shows us the, the magnitude of what takes place in these final chapters. So much prominence is is given to the events of this week. Uh, The first part of today's passage will be very familiar to many of you, and we're not going to spend any of our time uh, looking at the first 11 verses. Uh, To summarise them, Jesus is is revealed as God's king as he heads towards Jerusalem. On to the second part of the passage, verses 12 to 22, and and it's slightly less familiar. Uh, It's these verses that we're going to focus on, uh, and you can, you can break up those verses into, into two scenes. Uh, scene one is, is at the temple as Jesus arrives, verses 12 to 17. Scene two happens the following day as Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem with his disciples. Uh, and that's verses 18 to 22. Uh, so let's have a look at scene one. The Son of God is in the house of God. Uh, and it should be a, a monumental occasion. The kind of thing that that should give you goosebumps, a euphoric experience. Uh, Maybe you can picture Jesus uh, there, looking around the the beautiful architecture, marvelling at the incredible stonework before him, before acknowledging the the praise of those around him. But when Jesus enters the temple, that's not the image that we're given. Instead, as he goes in, he's greeted by absolute chaos. Chaos. The house of God resembles a a bustling marketplace. People buying and selling animals. There there are money changes everywhere. And Jesus makes his his presence felt. He he drives these people out. He flips tables. He he seems very forceful and angry at what is happening. Uh, And his actions here have been used by various people as kind of ammunition against him. Uh, Bertrand Russell, for one, Uh, as someone who claims that there's no way Jesus can be God based on what he does. People like Russell would have us believe that Jesus' anger here is unprovoked and a a clear character flaw, not something you'd expect of a person claiming to be God. But Jesus explains his actions in verse 13. Uh, He quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer a place where people go to draw near to God. But that's not what Jesus found. You'll see there in in verse 12, there are three particular groups mentioned who Jesus takes issue with. Firstly, the buyers. Uh, It's a lot easier to to bring money when you're traveling over a long distance than it is to bring an animal. So instead of bringing sacrifices from their own flocks, as as Jesus uh, asked, that they, they bring so, uh, they just bring some money to buy sacrifices at the temple. It's, it's laziness. It's disrespectful to God because it's disobeying what he's asked of them. And so they are condemned by Jesus. Uh, next is the sellers, and, and they're equally part of the problem. Uh, if you've ever hired a car, you'll know that, that when you return it, you're supposed to fill it up with petrol. Uh, one time I, I hired a car at an airport, and I was running out of time when I returned it, so I decided to, I'd fill up close to the airport. Uh, and I'm sure I paid more than I should have. Uh, petrol stations near the airport are often more expensive. They, they know people like me are, are desperate, and so they bump up the prices and make a profit. 
Uh, And I wouldn't be surprised if a similar thing is happening at the temple. Sacrifices being sold for a decent profit. Uh, It may be a nice thing that they're doing, but but perhaps it's being done for personal gain. And and the money changers are probably being blasted for a similar reason. Jesus enters and is greeted by all of this behavior. The temple has become what the prophet Jeremiah described as a den of robbers. Uh, And a den isn't a a place where a thief steals. It's a a place where they hide. So so the temple has become something of a hideout for these corrupt people, a place of security. And so Jesus takes action. He, He puts a stop to it. And once Jesus has cleared the temple and all the kerfuffle that's, that's been taking place, look at what happens. The blind and the lame are able to come to him. People who would have been restricted in their involvement in the temple uh, now enter in. And Jesus does this wonderful thing for them. He heals them. He shows that he can make pure or make clean those who desire to worship God. Uh, and we'll think more on that idea a little bit later Uh, Now, these amazing things he does, they cause the children to exclaim, Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, Probably the words they heard proclaimed as as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem on on the donkey. And aren't we privileged to know how how true those words were? This is Jesus, the, the king from the family line of David, the one promised centuries before. Uh, The chief priests and the the teachers of the law would have recognized what Jesus was saying and uh, what what the implications of the children's words were. Uh, And this, along with the wonderful healings he did, made them furious. Do you hear what these these children are saying, they exclaim. Uh, They probably expect Jesus to to correct the children, to, to scold them. But Jesus simply quotes Psalm 8. He says, Have you never read... From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. See, Psalm 8 is a psalm where children are praising God. And so as the children praise Jesus in the temple, and as Jesus accepts their praise and and quotes Psalm 8, he's claiming to be God. And that must have sent the chief priests and and the teachers to tipping point. Well, if the leaders and the the chief priests were, were indignant before, Just imagine their emotions at at that point. It's no surprise it says that he leaves and he goes to Bethany. So that's the end of the the first scene of the passage. The second scene takes place uh, the next morning and and Jesus and the disciples have had a rest. They're heading back to the city for for round two. And at this point, Matthew includes this, this seemingly unnecessary information, letting us know that Jesus was hungry. It's a pretty odd thing to include, isn't it? Uh, Earlier we saw Jesus allude to himself as God. We saw his divinity. But here we see his humanity. He may be fully God, but he's also fully human, just like you and I. He needs rest like us. He needs food and drink like us. And Jesus being God and man is is something that Matthew points out throughout his gospel uh, and something that other parts of the Bible will show us as well. Now, there are, there are two important truths that, that Christians have defended throughout history. Uh, this week, the staff and I were, were reading a book about a guy named Athanasius, uh, a man who staunchly defended these two truths, that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. Uh, after the sermon, we're going to be saying the, the Nicene Creed together, which affirms these two truths. It's a, it's a statement of 
Christian belief. Uh, and Athanasius was, was likely there almost 1,700 years ago when, when this creed was first drafted. He was a man who stood against those who denied that either of those things were true. And he was exiled from the church four times because he continued to affirm the Nicene Creed. But he always managed to, to find a way back. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Uh, it's a smaller side, but, but we see both of these things on display in our passage. And, and they're two things uh, that we must continue to affirm. Because even as we see something as small as, as Jesus' hunger, we're reminded that our Saviour is also someone who knows what it is to walk on this earth. Someone who can fully relate to the struggles we face in this life, no matter how big or small they may be. Uh, and that should be a great comfort to us. So Jesus is hungry, and, and we get this random account of what happened next. He sees a fig tree, he goes to it, but he finds no figs. He just finds leaves. Uh, and apparently, leaves on a fig tree are, are usually a good sign. And at that time of year, the leaves on the tree pointed to the fact that there should have at least been uh, fruit buds on the tree. Maybe not fully grown figs, but at least edible fruit buds. Instead, Jesus is, is left in his hunger. But there's another surprise for us as Jesus curses the, the fig tree. It's as if he, he throws a, a little bit of a mini tantrum. He says, may you never bear fruit again. Uh, and it's a strange response, isn't it? Some would say this is proof that, that Jesus hates the environment. He, he's no greenie. Uh, others, and that, that's complete nonsense, obviously, because, because he created everything in the environment. Uh, others, like our old friend Bertrand Russell, would say it's an example of Jesus' vindictive fury. Uh, and I must admit, as I, as I looked at this passage initially, uh, it had me wondering, is he just overreacting? Isn't it all a, a little bit unnecessary? But there's a significance to this incident that, that's being included. See, this judgment of the fig tree is a picture of the judgment that will come upon the temple. Because the temple, as, as Jesus arrives, it's this wonderful structure where, where the name of God is to be honoured where the people of God are to be spiritually fed. And when you look at it from the outside, uh, I assume it appears as if that is what it's doing, drawing people in, deepening their relationship with God, uh, a place where people come and find forgiveness for sin. But it's not until Jesus gets inside that we see how corrupt the temple really is. Like a fig tree with, with many leaves, the temple promises much. It should be bearing fruit, but instead it's dishonouring God. It's become a, a place of insincerity and personal gain rather than a place of fruitful worship. Do you see why Jesus acts the way he does in these verses? He's not short-tempered or, or lacking self-control. He simply wants his Father's house to be a place of, of worship and prayer. Now in verse 20, the disciples ask about this withering fig tree, uh, and Jesus' reply is, is as cryptic as can be. Uh, I have no doubt that these are the, the hardest verses in the passage to get our heads around. Uh, let me read verses 21 and 22 again. I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what, it, what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, 
Go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Uh, the mountain that Jesus speaks about is seemingly the mount that the temple stands on. In other words, I think he's saying, have faith. What happened here to the fig tree? It's nothing compared to what will happen to the temple. The temple that is, is currently fruitless won't be around forever. It will be thrown down. And we know now, looking back, that the temple in, in Jerusalem was eventually overthrown. But we also know that through Jesus, God would establish a new temple. And as we know, the way that people will, will draw near to God is no longer through a physical temple, but through Jesus. Uh, so I think the, these verses are, primary, are primarily pointing to, to what will happen to the temple uh, if it remains fruitless. So that's, that's scene two, on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, and I hope you see that this passage in Matthew is all about worship at the temple. Uh, and as we, we mull over these verses this morning, uh, I can't help but feel there's a warning here for each of us. Because it's crystal clear that God takes an issue with the fruitless and, and insincere worship. Worship that's more interested in, in appearances than true repentance and, and actually loving God and his people. Worship that's more interested in personal gain than the proclamation and honour of God. It's the kind of worship habit that, that all of us could easily fall into. Church on a Sunday can, can become a bit of a hideout, our, our den, can't it? While the rest of the week, we essentially rob God, doing things we, we know we shouldn't be doing, behaving in ways that aggrieve God. But then on a Sunday, we're here, or even watching from home, uh, with the appearance of a fruitful life. We tick the box, we, we join the Bible study, maybe get baptised, we, we share communion together. These things are like the impressive structures of the temple or the green leaves of the fig tree. They're good things in and of themselves, but just as, as Jesus observes the temple and the fig tree, so also uh, will he observe each of our lives. Now we might be in close proximity to the people of God, but that won't be of use to us when Jesus returns if, if we're not bearing fruit. So, so the question to ask, uh, what will he find in your life? Will he find a, a person who is fruitful? Uh, I think that the passage gives us three helpful ideas of, of what fruitful and sincere worship looks like. Uh, firstly, prayerfulness. You see it in, in verses 13 and 22. Faithful and fruitful worship will be marked by an intimate prayer life. Speaking to God, being, being open and honest with him. Uh, secondly, bearing fruit involves genuine care for the faith of others. Genuine care for the faith of others. That's what the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law fail to show. And we'll see more of this in the coming weeks. Fruitful worship involves a desire and a willingness to help others grow in their relationship with God. A willingness to feed those who are spiritually hungry. A care for others that will often include a, a sacrifice of self as we follow our Saviour's example. Uh, thirdly, bearing fruit involves genuine repentance. Because as we know, sin is the thing that destroys relationship with God. And unrepentant sin 
can be the thing that leaves us like, like some of those in the temple, ticking along, yet unprepared for when God's judgment will come. And if you're someone who, who's living in sin and not really doing anything about it, uh, then can I encourage you to turn to Jesus? Because he, he clears the temple for, for people who were once far off like us. And by his blood he makes clean what was once unclean. God forgives us when we turn to Jesus in faith. And that's the remedy that we see in the, in the final two verses. If we're lacking fruit, turn to Jesus in, in faith. Uh, verses 21 and 22. Uh, the, these verses aren't a blank check to, to get whatever we want, uh, as some people would have us believe. They're a reminder that faith in the Jesus uh, is the thing that will allow us to worship God in a fruitful way. Uh, the children seem to get it in, in verse 15. They show faith. Uh, let me pray that we would be those who do likewise and who bear fruit as we commit our lives to worshipping our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much uh, for calling us into your kingdom. Uh, and we want to ask for your forgiveness for the times where we fail to live up to that calling. Lord, help us to bear the marks of those who, who bear your name. May we live fruitful lives uh, that deepen our relationship with you and draw others into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.